Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by very special guests, Pete Flint, James Courier of NFX. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Eric. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay, guys are the partners of NFX, um, a early stage venture fund focused on network effects businesses. James, you started NFX three years ago? Yes. But have been obviously a leader um, and thinker and builder of network effects businesses. Talk a little bit about how, uh, what your thesis of NFX is, the network, network effects businesses, and how that sort of evolved as you built out the fund. Sure. Uh, when we sold our first company in 2004 to a company called Monster, we discovered that we had a pretty well-run company, but they were buying us and they were poorly run. We saw that throughout their whole organization. And we said, it's amazing. How do they have so much revenue when uh, they're so poorly run? And it turns out that they had a network effect. They had a two-sided network effect between employers and employees. And from that, we realized, well, everything we do going forward should be network effect related. And then we started looking deeper into it and realized there's lots of different types of network effects. And then we did a study where we uh, looked at the hundreds of companies that have been about 350 companies that have become unicorns or worth over a billion, if you will, uh, since 1994, since the internet was connected us all. And if you look at that, you realize that about 70% of all the market cap created is given to companies with network effects at their core. And so once we realized that, we continued to look more closely into it. And, and we realized that that's the types of companies we want to invest in. Um, and so that's why we came up with the name NFX for network effects and why we started the fund. And Pete, you built a very big network effects real estate business. So I first met James in 2011 at his house. And as you can tell from the accent, I was born in the UK. And so I've, I've been fortunate to be behind um, or involved with two big network affair businesses in two continents. So in the Web 1.0 era, I was part of the founding team of lastminute.com, which as a Web 1.0 company was Europe's largest online travel business. So it's a travel marketplace. So think Expedia or Booking.com. And that was, you know, just a remarkable ride, a remarkable experience. So I moved to the US and then started Trulia, the real estate marketplace. And that was another fascinating ride over a decade and and so you know part of kind of my team out team out with james and a third partner giggy we'll talk about in a minute was that i just seen the network the powerful the powerful nature of these network effects and you once you're in it but just like james like once you're building network effect businesses and you realize that there is no other business that you want to be involved in because while building a startup is is always hard being in a startup that achieves a certain scale that has network effects is just wonderful. And then why? Because it compounds or it makes like, what's so wonderful about you know, like, what well, I makes think, it work? I mean, that by the, so the definition of network effects is the utility of the product increases for every user, every pre-existing user as you add more users. And that's a broad definition. We can get into the nuances, but you realize you have a unassailable position at a certain scale. So, so thinking about you know, my, my experiences both in travel and real estate, it was a real slog to build a travel business post September the 11th, real slog to build a real estate business post, post the housing collapse. But having survived those periods, what came out of it was just an unbelievable business. So you end up having 
this incredible product experience. And the nature of network effects often leads to winner-take-most or winner-takes-all outcomes. And so, like, you know, the, in a way, we we kind of want to build monopolies. Like, we're benevolent monopolies, but we're kind of building monopolies is kind of the best kind of businesses. And, you know, you see the most valuable businesses today are kind of communication monopolies or information monopolies or transportation monopolies and they and they provide enormous monopolies have a bad word often or a bad bad word but they're phenomenal economic producers and creating enormous value to our economy so we want to build these kind of enormous category businesses that become kind of winner take most or winner take winner take all outcomes yeah and another reason they're great is that you can go to sleep and when you wake up in the morning they're stronger than they were when you went to bed and you didn't do anything um, and so these, these businesses are very durable. So you can lose a VP of sales. You can lose a VP of marketing. You can, you know, lose a whole country if they shut you down, but you can still survive because you have a network effect. And it just is, um, it's, it's much more pleasant to run those types of businesses than fresh produce businesses. And, you know, when we think about network effects businesses, the average person thinks about you know, sort of the obvious example, social networks, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. What are, what are other examples of network effects businesses that are you know, different. You were this whole post, what it was, 15 types of network effects or? 13. 13. Give a couple other examples that may not be as obvious. Well, another one could be Salesforce. So originally Salesforce started out what we call embedding. And that's just your classic SaaS enterprise sale, which is great. It's a great defensibility. Oracle's done well doing that. You know, Workday's done well and Salesforce did well. But then eventually they figured out that they could build the force or, you know, force, which was Salesforce. And on top of that, hundreds and hundreds of companies have built software that now can be used by the companies that are using Salesforce. That's a two-sided platform network effect, much like a Microsoft OS, if you will. And their market cap went from about $18 billion to about $80 billion after they did that move. Another one would be Apple, right? Apple never really had a network effect. They had a scale effect, which is also like Amazon, very good. You can build a really big business doing that, but it's not a network effect. Eventually, they got iOS. And once they got iOS in place, you had hundreds of thousands of companies building really interesting apps on top and them taking 30%. That's, again, a two-sided platform network effect. So you can add network effects to your business in a, in a process we call reinforcement. And uh, people don't always notice when that happens. And is it better to start a business that has network effects right from the get-go? Or is it actually very common and recommended that you add something in when you have, if you have a wedge somewhere else? Like, How do you think about starting a business with network effects versus adding it in? Both can work, but it's usually best to start with a network effect because they're easier to reinforce. Yep. Of the 13 types of network effects, are there a couple or a few that you think are the most strong, the strongest that people should aspire towards? We typically say, Pete and Gigi and I typically say that, um, you know, the, the utility personal direct network effect, uh, we've got a, we've got a chart that shows the, all these different network effect types. And at the center is the strongest one. And it's this personal direct utility, which is, it's about you. It's it's a network, not a two-sided, but it's a network. And it gives you some utility that you just can't live without. So if you stop using it, you're going to be kind of screwed. And examples of that are things like Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp. Yeah. So one thing I'm curious to hear perspective on is how do people sort of misunderstand network effects? What are some misconceptions if people think that they have network effects, but they don't, or they think that this business doesn't have network effects, but it does? People get network effects confused all the time. There's no doubt. Uh, the, the most common misunderstanding is the difference between viral effects and network effects. Network effects are about retention and viral effects are about acquisition, simply put. The other thing is uh, people see scale effects that an Amazon might have or a Google might have and they might misinterpret them as network effects where they're where literally just the bigger you get, the lower your cost is 
the lower your price is and therefore everyone wants to use you. Um, but that's a scale effect. And then, um, and then the other defensibility that people confuse it with is the embedding one that we mentioned where uh, a company will embed their product into somebody else's business and it's hard to rip them out. And so, um, you know, that could also be called grooving and there's lots of different terms, but yeah, there's lots of misconceptions and you just need to study it. You just need to look at it. And as you're designing your business strategy, you just have to spend the time to tease out the differences because there's different playbooks for the different defensibilities. And I think the you know, it's it's clearly an overused phrase. Everyone aspires to be have network effects, but very few companies do. I think the you know, peeling it back a, a little bit, the network effects and the businesses we love most are ones that have less multi-tenanting. So users are kind of really fixated on a single platform, either on the supply side or on the demand side. But I think more more important where we spend and had a lot of success professionally has been understanding how to get scale on one or both sides of, of a marketplace business or achieving scale in, in the network effect. Cause you, you may have the most wonderful vision about how you can build a great business and you can have massive defensibility from this incredible network effect. But if you can't get any users to the platform, it just doesn't matter. And so what we, you know, we meet, when we meet entrepreneurs, understanding early on the tenacity, the capability, the innovation that they've figured out how to get some sort of scale at one side of that or one side of a marketplace or just scale in that network event. And that's, that's what separates a, a kind of a good network fair business from an exceptional network fair business. And what advice do you find yourself most giving entrepreneurs who are trying to bootstrap marketplaces? And how, how much of that is transferable across someone building in, you know, ed tech tutor marketplace versus a marketplace for doctors or, you know, how transferable across different industries, just like in general marketplace advice. Well, I think there's, there's a lot of kind of like, uh, different types of advice we give depending on the business. I think the, but in terms of bootstrapping, like supply side or demand side or, I mean, like, I mean, this, this sort of obvious playbook is to be heavily focused on the supply side. So like, so often you see founders are drawn to an end user experience, but often deeply understanding the supply. So let's just take a doctor marketplace. Like, Clearly understanding what are the needs of a doctor. They come from the needs of a patient, which we all come from, but like having a unique insight into the way that doctors work and deeply understanding and, and building tools to essentially lock in the supply side is, you know, the obvious starting point. When you think about most scale marketplace businesses, they've almost exclusively, they've figured out how to lock in supply and build an enormous economic value, value for them. Then, you know, clearly understanding the switching cost between participants. Like, can you, can you, is a switching, is, is it easy for multi-tenanting to happen? Then that can be a good thing to build, to build a new marketplace, but it can also create challenges as like they're going to go to other platforms. And then I think increasingly it's, it's an interesting time right now. And, you know, often people think about marketplace and they say, wow, isn't, isn't the kind of good stuff done? You know, when you think about transportation or hospitality or real estate, so I think an increasing trend in, in marketplace businesses is transforming the end user experience in, in radical ways. Um, so thinking about not just like, you know, lead gen market marketplaces are just not that interesting right now. And I think our expectations of consumers have grown dramatically over the last 10, 10 years since, since mobile came along. So how can you think about building product experiences? which are truly transforming either the economic equation and or, oh, ideally both, the consumer experience. And that, and that you can build sort of break, 
breakthrough breakthrough experiences. Yeah, in terms of whether the advice is good for different startups, I think I think it often it often is. I've never seen one marketplace that looked identical to another though. It's incredible the variety you can get in terms of what their different needs are. Focus on the supply, focus on the demand, when to focus on the supply, which type of supply. Lock in, not lock in, early rake, no rake, charging both sides, charging one side. Like there's so many variables to these businesses and I've never, it's, it's remarkable how different they can be. But yeah, the advice ends up once you've seen the patterns again and again and again. Yeah. The advice tends to, to kind of flow more easily. Yeah. James, you started, you know, a few different companies, one of which I think a bit over a decade ago was something like a, um, not, not a Wikipedia for like a crowdsourced company around, was it doctors or was it called, health? It was called Medpedia. Yeah. Yeah. We worked on that for about three and a half years. Yeah. I'm curious, what were lessons learned from that experience? And if you'd started that today, how might you do that differently? Oh gosh. Well, that one was a failure. I mean, we put probably 3 million into that and then eventually turned it into GIF.com, which ended up being more of a success. But the Medpedia issue is that we wanted to create a really good open database for healthcare information that just didn't exist on the web because Wikipedia hadn't been filled in yet with really good information. And we saw an opportunity to change the publishing dynamic of the industry where, honestly, it takes 17 years from when something is published in academia to when physicians actually implement it in the offices. And that's just a tragedy for so many people. There was a lot of uh, interest in altruism in, in doing this, and Harvard got involved, and Stanford got involved, and they had never worked on a project before together. And and we we drew we had to draw a line, which was only MDs and PhDs can edit because if we didn't do that, then Harvard and Stanford wouldn't want to get involved. And without their involvement, we wouldn't have had the prestige to attract the right type of information. We ended up with 28,000 pages. We ended up with an eight rank. I think we were one of 20 companies with an eight rank or above on Google. But in the end, a bunch of uh, 19 and 21-year-olds in India got together and within a year produced better content than we had coming from Stanford, Harvard, and everybody wow. else. Just the crowdsource model of a uh, crowd, you know, the network effect that they created in that community and the study that they all did to produce incredible quality content was something that we anticipated was coming, but we had no idea they would pull it off and they did a great job. And so there was no need for Medpedia to exist anymore. Hmm. If I understand correctly, correct me, NFX portfolio construction is something like if I had to get a third crypto, a third biotech, a third internet, everything else, or how would correct me in terms of sector? Like, how would you? break it down well i think so we don't we, we don't sort of break it down like that i think that we have a some some venture firms have a vertical thesis like they're just doing healthcare companies we have a horizontal thesis which is we're focused on network effect businesses and and i think as as, as like we explained they don't need to have network effects at the beginning but we either kind of want to scale pre-existing network effects in a business or invest in a great team and then identify network effects that they can add on later on to build defensibility. So we have a kind of eclectic group of companies, um, everything from robotics to crypto to real estate, synthetic biology, synthetic biology, IOT, right. connected devices, marketplaces. So it's, I think there's, you know, I think like in, you know, in every year, there are certain more interesting sectors to invest in than others. We think right now there's a kind of, bunch of interesting stuff going in crypto, a bunch of interesting stuff in synthetic biology. So how do you think about network effects in, say, something like synthetic biology or biotech broadly? Well, 
in synthetic biology, the opportunity there is to look at some data network effects because as biology becomes more computational, we start to see the same patterns we saw in software. That's the first step. The second step is to then apply two-sided marketplaces to it, two-sided platform effects to it. You can start to apply probably six or seven of the 13 can be applied to synthetic biology. And so we tend to look for those in the synthetic biology companies we talk to. What about, I mean, the whole promise of crypto is that uh, you can create new sort of incentive networks that can disrupt existing network effect businesses by, you know, incentivizing users and speculators and a whole new, you know, orders of magnitude, more people to have skin in the game. How have you guys thought about crypto networks, given your sort of network effects thesis and, and expertise? Yeah, there is that opportunity to kickstart these network effects by paying people. You know, because early on when you get going, there's there's no incentive, particularly if there's already network effect businesses in place. We haven't yet seen a great example where this has been effective enough to overturn the existing order of things. We will see probably five or six great efforts over the next 24 months. But the fact that the funding mechanism uh, of these ICOs has really dried up and is, you know, the puddle is now only in China. At this point, I think there may not be enough juice left in the tank to force an incentive-based network effect growth. These products are still going to have to be excellent, and that will have to be one of many incentives that these companies need to be giving people in order to crack through, I think. But we'll see. You know, there's there's definitely going to be some surprises to come in the next 24 months. In this uh, in this next sector or section podcast, I want to say a specific industry and then get your take on where are the interesting opportunities to build network effects businesses or when you put your investor hat on, where are some of the opportunities? But I'll sort of preempt that, that discussion by saying, if you guys put your entrepreneur hat on back, back on, um, and said you're going to start a business and you weren't limited to your existing skill sets and expertise as, uh, as strong as they are, like, you know, just as much about real estate, every industry as you do about say real estate, Pete, what, and this is for entrepreneurs who are listening, who are just you know, maybe on deck, just looking for that, that idea, uh, or, or white space. What would you go do if you weren't, you had any skill set you, you wanted, what type of business or what space would you really spend some time there and say, Hey, there's an interesting opportunity to build a great network effects business there. So, so I, th- I mean, let's just think. So 10 years ago, the space to be was largely in social networking. Five years ago, the space to be, I think was transportation, like the emerging transportation networks. And so, and out of that, I've created a hundred to $500 billion companies. Remarkable. Like in the space of five to 10 years. Remarkable. So like seeing here today, you know, in five to 10 years time, where is the hundred to $500 billion business? And it feels like largely healthcare, like, you know, this sort of this synthetic, synthetic biology space, the human body. I think the, you know, we're on the cusp of some remarkable achievements around kind of human biology, which will change our society in remarkable ways, just like you've seen how communication industries have been transformed, transportation. It feels like the human body may take longer, but I think the prize is actually that much bigger um, that interesting business would be built. And can you talk about a couple of examples of companies that you've either backed or you're really excited about within that space? Or, or the white space there that you think entrepreneurs should be like where within synthetic biology or health? So we invest in a company called Mammoth, Mammoth, which James is the NFX lead on. And it's a, you know, it's a fascinating company in the, in the CRISPR space. And that's a, a breakthrough technology that has transformational impacts to society. So we look at a lot of stuff in the area, but we think that's, 
that's that's a kind of more science project i would say not a science project but it's like a deep scientific foundation for that business there are many other companies that have less kind of less um phds let's say in, in the company which which we're looking at right now and we'd love to see more of them yeah it's a good question in terms of uh you know certainly synthetic biology healthcare i would say that of all the times that i've been an angel investor in the last 20 years I feel as if this time is more wide open than any I've seen. You know, if you were doing SaaS in the 2000s, that was cool. If you were doing gaming in the 2000s, that was cool too. If you were doing transportation in 2010 and 11, that was really the sweet spot. But you could have been doing social networking back then, whether it was WhatsApp or Snap or, you know. But right now, it's we're seeing a very broad range of shots on goal. And the reason that we're very optimistic about the next 10 years is not because there's a clear category winner, but just that the markets are so much bigger now that everyone's connected digitally. So your ability to grow quickly once you do find product market fit is beyond anything the world's ever seen. And it's really going to be that ability to grow quickly and scale quickly, which we think is going to produce big winners, even if it's not going to be some sort of fundamental shift in a technology, but it's going to be a, a shift in a process or a reconfiguration and then a new consumption model um, or a new business model. Yeah. Let's tackle some sectors. Pete, uh, let's start with real estate. Are the incumbents, you know, Zillow, Open Door, are they too strong? Like, where, where are the opportunities right now for entrepreneurs who want to build, you know, multi billion dollar companies in the real estate space? I think it's often forgotten that. Uh, in the real, the real estate industry is so enormous, absolutely enormous, like 30, $33 trillion in residential real estate, which is just staggering. And so, and I think most investors are like, well, we need to be the market leader to create a meaningful business. I think in reality, in real estate, you can have a 1% market share and be enormous business. So the things that if I was a group, the kind of sectors, or the areas of interest within real estate that are most interesting to us is one is alternative transaction models. The information space is, is, is not done, but it's less interesting. That's Zillow. Yeah, exactly. Truly and Zillow. And, and that's so why I think it's a great experience, but alternative transaction models, consumers today are very, are much more open to alternative transactions and, and alternative transaction providers than they were a decade ago because they feel empowered by all this information. So you're seeing the rise of kind of Open Door and Redfin. We invested in a company called Ribbon. It's doing exceptionally well, really taking out the friction out of the, the home buying transaction. Another area is what we call rough, broadly alt living. So there's the sort of, you know, you see it in kind of We Live and Common and companies like uh, Lyric and Zeus, which, you know, that's, there's a, there's a lot of things, sort of reasons for that. But fundamentally, it's about consumers are changing. As, as we know, cons- consumer habits and people are getting married later and having kids later. But your physical space just is really hard to change. And so companies are repurposing space to kind of meet the, meet the modern needs of consumers. And that's, again, an enormous opportunity. And the third is, again, the, the real estate space is just so enormous. So we think about the kind of like, the, the costs associated with living, whether that's kind of renovation, whether that's DIY, like the kind of the stuff that isn't your rent is enormously expensive as well. So we see big opportunities for the right kind of software approach to those companies we think could be super interesting. What is so $30 trillion? What is the biggest real estate company in the world? Like, where is that money divided? <laughs> you know. 
So, it, I mean, there's there's sort of folks like this asset managers like BlackRock and others, but, you know, I believe that um, Zillow Group is the, the most valuable online real estate company in the world. And it's it's an interesting space. So you look at the last 15 years or so, there have been $6 billion residential online real estate companies in the US created. So just $6 billion online. So that's and that's excluding commercial, that's excluding things like Airbnb. And it's the network effects are highly localized, but we we see this as a kind of fertile area that it's unlikely to be a winner take all environment, but there's a lot of companies that are kind of working in, you know, whether it's the sort of research and transaction phase, whether it's the living space, the amount of billion dollar companies just in the kind of all living space we think will be significant. And house and kind of that kind of broader area, again, there'd be multiple billion dollar companies. So we think it's we think it's a super fertile super fertile ground. So I just came back from Atomic, the venture studio. And James, I know you've uh, started your own venture studio in the past. You're very familiar with the model. Let's pretend that we were starting a venture studio and we were picking like 10 to 15 different ideas that we were going to pursue. A question for you guys, what sort of a general framework you have for, you know, say real estate, you know, evaluating opportunity like, like what Open Door is taking on or Zillow is taking on or Redfin's taking on? How do you think about when to say, no, that's just, and putting aside strength of team, that, that opportunity is just, we missed it. Um, or, you know, it just open doors already wanted the data network effects too strong or whatever it is first. No, no, no. The market's changing in this way and that's going to present a new a disruptor or new entrant. How, how do you think about just when evaluating markets, thinking that there will be a lot more white space versus, you know, incumbents t- taking it all? We're not going to get into sort of specifics about a particular thing, a particular uh, vertical, but, you know, we really encourage the founders to look at their market maps. I mean, 15 years ago, there weren't a lot of companies that had tried this stuff, but there are now. I think uh, I, th- I saw someone say that uh, the best founders today are going to be good historians, right? You've really got to dig into what people have tried before because you're going to learn a lot. You're going to save months, if not years of time by learning what they've tried and failed at or what little parts of what they tried were working before they shut down or something like that. So I think there's a little bit more humility that needs to be taken here. I see a lot of founders come up with ideas from eight years ago and they have no idea who's already tried this. And I think that's that's a mistake. I mean, one of the things we also suggest to people in addition to doing really uh, extensive market maps and talking to people is to make sure that you've got a high ASP business, average sales price. And one of the reasons real estate works so well is because it's a big high ASP business. Um, selling diamonds is high ASP. What's a low ASP business? That's a bad idea. There can be low ASP businesses like a Poshmark, right? Where your ASP is maybe 45 or 50 bucks, but people are doing it two or three times a week. And they're going to, they're, you know, they're at a billion GMV. They're going to be a multi-billion dollar marketplace with, with small ASP, but high frequency. But, you know, you're in a no man's land when you're sort of at a 65 or $85 ASP and you're doing it once or twice a year. Now that tends to be really difficult to build a business in that space. I think there's, I mean, timing is everything. I think we, we've seen how these industries, which nothing happens. And then in a short period of time, everything happens. So you're seeing, you know, I think we're on this kind of verge. Scooters. Scooters. Yeah. Who would have thought, you know, I you won growing up. Um, and that's like, it's, Gigi, been- Gigi, our other partner, he gave me a scooter two and a half years ago and I've been riding around on it. I didn't see anyone else on a wow. scooter. It never occurred to me that you build a big <laughs> transportation business on something nobody was doing. And so what happened that allowed that, that to, I mean, so, so, I mean, the framework that kind of I think through is, is really what is the technology catalyst, you know, in that area? It's, it's pervasive mobile use plus cheap batteries. 
and supply chain. Two is the sort of economic impetus, which may or may not be strong. I think you, but having, you know, what we see is like in periods of perhaps recession or economic shifts, then there's like, we've, you know, you think of Airbnb, like there was an economic impetus rather than technology catalyst for that business in 2009. Um, and the third is cultural acceptance. So like, you know, I'm not quite sure how it happened that it was cool to go around on scooters, but now it, now it is cool. Maybe it, you know, the- might not be in five years. <laughs> Remember rollerblades, people. Yes. <laughs> I had them. So going back to your, your concept of, um, market maps, let's say you do these market maps. You're starting, Julia, you know, it's a decade ago and presumably you weren't the first person to try that before. Maybe you were. I don't know. Um, like when do you decide you do this market map and someone has tried your idea before? When do you say, oh, they've tried it, I shouldn't do it, or they've tried it, but that was a different time, and they did it this way that didn't work, and I'm going to do it in this different way. Like, How do you think about that? My main thing in differentiating between the two is to understand the psychology of the users. So if the psychology hasn't changed or your new approach doesn't fundamentally shift how people, how the customer thinks about what you're doing, then it doesn't matter what day or age it is. Uh, it's not going to get through. And uh, so many people come and say, well, you know, millennials are different now. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. And it's usually not that they're, they're, that they're much different. So if, if I see this as psychology is the same, then it's probably still not going to work. Right. So predicting timing is either a function of a technology catalyst or of a real change in, in user behavior, right. which right. is and, rare. <laughs> and enter- enterprise sales doesn't change much. Right. It's the way you sell into these organizations, where the budgets are located, how people react politically to what you're trying to do. This is pretty consistent over decades. And so assuming that that's going to be different this time is, is a tough assumption. And I, and I see a lot of founders falling into that trap. And examples of changing user behavior are things like Snapchat or Uber or a few others. Yeah. The, the, the last thing we want to see is that people's psychology has changed because psychology doesn't generally change. Usually the things that really explode suddenly are coming from technological shifts. And how do we get better at predicting those? Like how, how does the, uh, you know, our, our scouts out there, investors try, trying to prove their you know, sharpness. How do you think they get better at predicting those? Like what are going to be the catalysts that are going to create openings where, where they weren't previously? I think that, I mean, we're lucky to live in a world which is, you know, you're a village global. It's like we're increasingly global. And I think there are, you know, there are petri dishes all over the world. And I think you're starting to see phenomena that crop up in parts of the world, which are being adopted by and improved upon in other parts of the world. And that, and that communication and that idea is increasingly, increasingly frictionless. You can export ideas, you know, would take, you know, ideas that cropped up in kind of India and Asia would take, you know, centuries ago would take centuries to kind of get to the get to the West, but now that's happening in a matter of years, if not months. And so I think that's the petri dish. And it's so and it's you know, I think it's uh like it's we have a third partner in Israel, it's like and I'm born in the in the the UK and James has lived all over the world. It's like that kind of global view, you know, is really important to us to help to kind of like observe these different experiments that are happening everywhere, every single day. Although we do tend to focus our investing in Silicon Valley and Israel. So, so let's talk about that because, you know, there's a big narrative that says, you know, it's cheaper to build companies elsewhere. It's easier to raise money. It's easier to, you know, uh, we've democratized a lot of the learnings on the internet and it's easy to, to get up to speed in startup literature. So, but you guys believe 
that most of the returns will come from Silicon Valley, will continue to come from Silicon Valley. Is that correct? Talk, unpack that. I didn't believe that 15 years ago. Uh, I believe that New York and Seattle and Austin and um, you'd see a lot of London, you'd start to see a lot of fabulous, large, important companies being built in those areas. And unfortunately, we just haven't seen that. So I think the data is sort of discouraging in that regard. It's the case that it might be cheaper to build a failed startup in markets outside of Silicon Valley because salaries are lower and real estate is lower. But I think it's still cheaper to build really successful companies here because you have the expertise, which matters so much more than how much you're paying them, right? If you're, if you're paying someone, you know, 250,000 a year here instead of 120,000 somewhere else, but they're 20 times better. It's not even comparable. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're students of network effects. And so when you look at these innovation centers, they achieve breakthrough velocity in capital, in talent, and in culture. And it's extremely hard to kind of dis displace that. And so we look at the innovation centers across the world, and we're excited about those. That I think the there's a kind of, as, as you know, there's just an enormous power law in, um, in venture. And so, you know, what we hope to do is every venture in does, a venture investor does is to, to invest in the outlier, the kind of the next Facebook or the next Uber. And, and being that company, you're inherently global. The only way to build a company of that scale is to go after a global market. And the very best place to build that with or, he, or headquarter that company is certainly Silicon Valley. Um, so that's a, that's a bias. I think the, the kind of the, the obvious, the, thing we always ask ourselves is like every great company breaks a major rule that you've got so i think we're not kind of we're not naive enough to say that this is an unbreakable rule but we have you know we have a kind of like a, a bias towards the innovation centers where exceptional businesses they may not necessarily start there but they ultimately will base the hq in one of the major innovation hubs yeah so when you look at the growth of important companies they start with product market fit they move to a period of rapid scaling. They move next into a period of reinforcement of their defensibility. But all the way through those three stages, there's a cultural way of thinking about product market fit, a cultural way of thinking about growth, and a cultural never sleep, never rest paranoia that allows you to continue to build reinforcement even if things are working pretty well. And you don't see that too often outside of, of Silicon Valley and, and uh, Tel Aviv, which is why you see so repeatedly many companies growing medium size in some other markets and then, and then faltering. We certainly admire many businesses out there outside of Silicon Valley. And as James said earlier, that the digital economy is so large right now, you can very, well, not, not easily, but it's very likely that you'll see multiple billion dollar companies coming out of Europe over the next several years just because the economy is so big and that's wonderful if you you know invest in those businesses that's incredible and the same for kind of many parts of the world obviously kind of India and China it's already happened it's like yeah and and that's to that point we haven't mentioned China like this is excluding China like yeah. China's its own thing right. they've been around for 5000 years they're doing it right they've got as many decacorns as they want they're doing great we're just not talking about yeah but when Mike Moritz writes a piece I don't want to speak for him, but I think along lines of, hey, Silicon Valley's gone soft, sort of re re relative to China. You know, James has been here a couple of decades plus. Does that resonate with you? Like company building today versus what it was? Have we gone soft? 
No, I don't think we've gone soft. I think, I think it's like Hollywood. Look, in the seventies, you would talk about people moving their movie production to, to New York, right? Or to Paris or something. And, and, and still 95% of all the revenue made from movies comes from 50 mile radius in Hollywood. I don't think we've gone soft. I just think that China's doing great. And they've got their own ecosystem, like we've got our own ecosystem. They've got their own cultural ways that are working in the same way we have our cultural ways that are working. We'd love to export our cultural ways of working to other parts of the U.S. and to Europe. It's just proving really difficult. People don't want to think that way because it's kind of painful. You know, you're, you're constantly questioning yourself. You're constantly trying again. You're, you're bobbing, weaving, shifting all the time. You never rest. And that mentality, which we do have here and which we maintain here, is what's good for these hyper-growth companies. And that's hard to push out into environments that don't believe in that. But China does, and they always have. I think the, you know, you talked about kind of like geographic dispersion. I think over the last several years, you've, you have seen a rise in distributed teams. And I think the traditional kind of playbook in Silicon Building and Silicon Valley companies is everyone in their garage and then everyone in one big room and you know, reality is that we, everyone would love to have that as a situation. But if you really want to move fast and fast is just in speed is kind of the necessary ingredient for success, you often have to just do things differently. So the amount of, amount of companies that are building distributed teams has grown dramatically. And it's, and while it's, you know, like I said, you ideally have everyone in the same room, tools like Zoom and Slack and kind of other tools make it just a bit easier to do it. So we're seeing way more companies be successful with that, with that model. And they're figuring out ways to kind of manage coordination and manage communication and manage productivity. And for certain, for certain company, it's, it's a now a key defensibility for them because they can hire exceptional talent and they've created new ways of working, which, you know, the incumbents have just no way of, of competing. We have a debate about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still looking for a really big company that reached its potential with a distributed team. WordPress could have been so much bigger. 37 signals never became a, a, a dominator. It's, it's proven really difficult. I, I think that the Homo sapien, this is James again. I, I think Homo sapien has a lot of synaptic matter that is dedicated toward very delicate signals. And I think that these technology companies are very delicate pieces of art that are very dependent on the humans involved. And as such, again and again, we've seen companies with everyone in the same room do a lot better than people with distributed teams. Yeah. It's interesting uh, to draw. It's hard to draw lessons from things because you take something like WordPress, multi-billion dollar company, but you could say, yeah, it could have been a hundred billion or something if it was together. That's why it's hard to draw lessons from. And there's only like a couple examples, you know. Well, there's only a couple examples. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, 10 years ago, the example was WordPress. Now the example is WordPress, <laughs> you know. <laughs> There's a few, <laughs> not as big, but yeah, I hear you. But, uh, did you want to say have the last word? No, no. no like, I, I think we do have a kind of you know yeah, different perspective yeah. on it. It's yeah. like I think if you take the bet that you know increasingly things will be kind of digitized, and like if you take a view also that ultimately AR might be better than you know real life, then it becomes like feasible that you could do it. So like. I'm a kind of a believer in technology to kind of like not solve every kind of physical space, but like I said, ultimately it's about like as, as kind of investors, we want to like check in our biases and kind of and try to break rules because that's the only way you're going to, you know, you, you know, we want to see things that other people don't see, which is throwing conventional wisdom away. Yeah. You know, we've been talking about 
remote teams versus on-site teams. Uh, we talk about China. We talk about crypto. Sort of begging the question a little bit about centralization versus decentralization. Do you have a thought on? How, there's obviously that's a big topic within crypto. Like what should be decentralized? What should be centralized? Do you have a thought on how that dichotomy intersects with the concept of, of network effects? Uh, like a lot of people are trying to build you know, decentralized companies with their or decentralized almost open source projects with their own versions of of network effects. How do you think about that? I mean, there's no doubt that that for both a a network or a marketplace and for a company, you need to build culture. Building that culture has certain, you know, there are certain mechanisms you can use to try to build that culture. And one of the ones we just discussed was getting everyone in the same room uh, for a company. Clearly, all the users of a network or a marketplace aren't going to be in the same room. So their culture is going to be driven based on the interface you provide them, on the rules you give them, on the numbers you show to them. And so, you know, designing that appropriately needs to happen whether uh, you have centralized your database or whether you've got a, a blockchain database or whether, you know. So the, the needs of the humans involved are always the same and the mechanisms might change for how you distribute the behavior in the culture or how you teach that or how you build that in order to build a, a, a valuable human activity. So going back to our game where we value different sectors, let's just talk about marketplaces broadly. What are sort of frameworks for, for you guys, do you advise entrepreneurs when thinking about, oh, there's a good opportunity for marketplace or there's a good opportunity? Like what is, what's something to think about before jumping into, hey, I'm going to build this marketplace? Well, we've, we published a, a blog post about the sort of, you know, 19 ways of solving the chicken or egg problem. And if you can get access to a bunch of those, that's going to be helpful. Uh, we've got something else coming out, uh, where we're talking about 14 different attributes of marketplaces that are useful to have. So, so we're going to have sort of an NFX checklist around marketplaces, but you know, one of them is moving the money through you. For instance, a lot of people start marketplaces where the transaction happens outside of, of them. And that's not usually a good idea. It's hard to take a rake. It's hard to keep track of whether they're disintermediating you, that sort of thing. Uh, multi-tenanting is something Peter mentioned earlier. We look at that a lot. How how much can either side of a marketplace uh, use a different option simultaneously to using yours? Right, I can use eBay and Amazon. I can sell on Etsy and Amazon. What's stopping me from doing that? Um, as an Uber driver, I can do Lyft and Uber. I could probably do a third. It's not that hard. I can stick a third sticker on my car. As a user of Uber, I can use both apps pretty easily. How do you think about something like AngelList as a marketplace? You know, I heard you know, we work with a company that's trying to do sort of an AngelList for pharma, and there are sort of pros and cons with, with with how do you evaluate that sort of model? Yeah, I think that that model we've called that a market network uh, in the past. It's a tough business to to run, but we think you're going to end up seeing giants built in the various verticals using this approach. You know, you've got to have a SaaS tool that allows people to use it on a daily basis to get something done. You've got to have a marketplace where people can transact and you've got to have a network of all the people who are trying to interact with each other. You've got to give them all profiles. You've got to give them calendars. There's lots of features you need to give them in order for this market network to take place. You know, the, the challenge, obviously, if you're doing all these different things at once is that it was hard enough to build a marketplace 10 years ago or a network, you know, or a community. You've got to, or a SaaS company. You've got to do all of those things simultaneously in the same company. And that, again, that's sort of a cultural challenge. You've got to think about a network as a network. You've got to think about the marketplace as a marketplace. You've got to think about it right. And the features have to move and bob, you know, in the right way at all times. So, so those are, those are the next generation of, I think, what we're going to see around networks, which is they're going to be money driven networks as opposed to socially driven networks. But it's taking a while for them to develop because they're just hard to, they're hard to build. Pete, let's talk about travel. You know, we've got 
Expedia, we got TripAdvisor, I mean, a bunch of other incumbents in the space. Where are the next multi-billion dollar companies in, in travel going to be? Well, well travel is a hard space. It's a hard space, particularly because the, I mean, just the dynamics around a marketplace you see in the supply side to be, you know, significant multi-tenanting within supply side and, and demand side is ultra competitive that it's, you know, I think booking or Priceline is the, um, you know, the, the same company, obviously, uh, the single biggest spender, spender on Google. So it's like enormously difficult to build massive online travel businesses. So I kind of, and then we often talk about this is that, that often the kind of the way to reinvent an industry is to think about an orthogonal approach to that industry. So selling plane tickets probably ain't going to be a kind of like a, a big business or selling hotel rooms is not going to be, uh, uh, you know, so just throwing out an idea is there, like we talked about augmented reality earlier, you know, is the next travel company, billion dollar travel company going to have people traveling when they're at home? You know, it's, it's sort of a, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that's a good idea. So, so don't necessarily pitch us on it right now, <laughs> but it's like stuff like that where you, I think you kind of like, what are the crazy ideas that kind of people have? And I think that's when it's, when it's, when it's going off at the same dollar spend that's in travel and it is an enormous dollar spend, but actually solving that problem in a very, very interesting and novel way, then that's, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, or could you start it as a SaaS company, or could you start it as an API platform monitoring company for the travel industry and then expand from there? You've got to find a new way in at this point. And too often, I think we see what was done in the past and we fight the old war because we can, we have pictures of it. There should be a, a lot better history of like detailed analysis of different markets and how they've evolved over time and really, really be a service to entrepreneurs. What about education, James? Maybe you could start. Um, because somewhat hard spaces. Where's the, where's the potential billion opportunity there? We haven't invested in an education company yet. We keep looking. We'd like to, but it's very hard for many, many reasons. In terms of what would be something that would excite us, it would be something that was probably direct to consumer. So people are paying. Continuing education uh, is interesting to us. It would be, uh, you know, sort of launching careers might be interesting. You know, we've also looked at a number of sort of corporate. We don't think the corporate education thing is solved yet. Uh, we think there's probably multiple billion dollar corporate education companies yet to be built. Uh, so that's an area that's interesting. That's where the money is and their willingness to pay and willingness to help their employees is there. How about health outside of Zimpat? Like just standard traditional digital health. Have you guys backed companies there? Any marketplaces? So I, I'm a early stage in as a before I joined with James and Giggy, investor in a company called Solve Health, S-O-L-V Health, which was founded by a team that used to work for me. And there, and they've subsequently raised money from Benchmark and Greylock and doing really wonderful stuff, but really focused on the urgent care clinics right now. So, I mean, obviously selling into hospitals is like super hard and time consuming traditionally, but going after urgent care clinics, which offer an exceptional user experience, but they're not that digitize and they're highly fragmented so that's they're building a very interesting business in that area which which makes a ton of sense the sort of like everyone you know if if you break an arm and you need to go to the hospital it's like it can be a good experience but more often than not that it's an incredibly frustrating experience and people are very willing to spend a lot of money at that point to, to solve a problem and urgent care clinics have kind of cropped up and they're a technology company that that facilitates that yeah, and that, that company has the advantage of selling to people who are profit-motivated and uh, aren't as embedded in the system as hospitals typically are or insurance companies. 
I'm seeing a lot of businesses that are trying to be like one medical for X, one medical for musculoskeletal, one medical, like basically private plant for women's health, like different segments. Then I'm seeing a lot of different business models that are trying to be, uh, you know, NERX, so birth control on demand for, for, you know, for antidepressant, NERX for X, antidepressants or PIMS, you know, erectile dysfunction. What do you guys think about, you know, either of those business models and, how do you think, are there times where you find a business that works in one space and you're like, oh, like how much of the Uber for X or the X for Y do you guys think about when you find something that works in one one vertical and say, oh, we should apply it to different verticals or different parts of segments of that same vertical? We don't mind companies using analogies like that. Those analogies get stale once the space has been you know, oversaturated and doing a, what we call, you know, DTC plus prescription business like a HIMS or whatever. That's probably still a fertile soil for another year. Uh, so we don't mind that. There are clearly opportunities to build scale. I think if there's a kind of like great branding, you know, a lot of you, you see and in the, um, CPG industry, there's like, you've got incumbents that are like, are not innovating. They have capacity to innovate and you've got startups that are creating kind of innovative brands and achieving scale and they're figuring out how to collapse supply, supply chain to create attractive economics. And so they're, they're achieving the scale very, very rapidly. I think the, and many of them will be fabulous, you know, investments, investments. And I, the, the question is kind of how do you build kind of long-term scale and defensibility? And, and so, and, and I mean, massive scale because you, you can see, you can see, you know, hundreds of brands being proliferated. But again, what is the network effect that kind of that, that, that they build in inside them? I think some of the stuff that we're really excited about is like, how can they, perhaps apply some of the lessons from these kind of these vertically focused brands, but then augment on network effects to really give them a kind of the superpower to the next stage. Almost analogous, as James was saying earlier around Salesforce, it's like there was a, you know, a great service for can get to A to B, but like what is the kind of C and D? And, you know, often we don't, we don't really expect to know the answer. But if we back an exceptional team, they'll figure out that answer. What's the kind of act two? What's the act three? And, you know, some of these businesses will sell at a great multiple and do really well and good for them. Others will figure out the act two and the act three and kind of be there. The Amazon or the Netflix of their industry and reinvent themselves. I think another thing that's interesting <clears throat> more recently about these sorts of companies, whether it's the One Medical for Blank or the Hymns for Blank, is that a lot of them are going to depend on their fundraising ability. And that's sort of a tautology that didn't exist, I think, 15 years ago. It really does now. So you look at One Medical and, you know, the founders there is extraordinary. And so he's going to be able to raise as much money as you want. Tom's great. And so I'm not sure that all the founders are in that same situation. And if they're not, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. Sort of like Justin Kahn and Atrium. Exactly. Yeah. I need to raise money. Will you guys do any media businesses? Music, movies, any aggregators in those spaces, uh, like a... BuzzFeed today, like a anything social media going full circle, like you guys touch anything there? It's esports and emerging media stuff. You know, in in the last year, nothing in that in that area. But you know, that's not to say that there's not interesting stuff. I think we've we've kind of we've we've found a lot of the more interesting things being in radical technology breakthroughs such as Mammoth and and CRISPR, or in you know complex industries. Where they've kind of like, they've got an in, insight into scale. But we, we clearly know the kind of scale and engagement of those industries is remarkable. And so there will be opportunities for startups. It's, it's just really, really hard 
against the incumbents to, to get scout this time. One thing I know you think a lot about, James, that we think is underrated is picking a great name, whether a great name for a company, a great name for a product, or just the power of names to stick. What, what makes something a, a, a great name and why do people make mistakes when, when picking, picking names for things? I think the main reason people don't pick great names is they don't think it's important. You know, I know a lot of great investors who, you know, insist that it has nothing to do with the success of a company. And I just fundamentally disagree. And I think once one decides that these things are important, that language is how we move human psychology, it is how we touch people, it is the chit, if you will, that is given between two people in a room when you're not there. It's your name of your company or of your product. Once you decide it's important, that's the first step to deciding that you're going to do a good job of naming your company and then, or your product. And, um, and then I think that the second thing is just making sure that it's memorable. I mean, there's so many things out there today that, are out there. You, you've got to cut through the clutter. You've got to amplify what you're doing. You're going to be spending a lot of money perhaps on marketing. You know, every time, if your name is slightly better, you're going to save 10% on your marketing. That could be the difference between winning or losing. If you're building a network effect business, you'll get that much further ahead of your competitor that much faster with less capital. So I always, um, help people try to come up with names like Incredible Health, like Mammoth, like Firefly. Like many of the companies that we we're working with now are, have changed their name um, with the help of Pete and me and Giggy uh, Ribbon. I mean, many of them. And what, what makes a great name? Something that you have a clear picture in your head when, when you see it? Something that's super short? Something that... Yeah, all those things. And things that are searchable, trademarkable, findable on the URLs. Like You've, you've got to go down a checklist and it takes a long time. And when you're moving fast... As a founder, you don't feel like you have that amount of time. And I get it. I've been there. But in the end, you know, I did four venture back companies and two of them, we changed the name in the middle after we had, after we had uh, raised the money. You think about it like, you know, the, the great technology companies become great brands and great brands require an emotional connection and great brands spread by word of mouth and grassroots adoption. You're just only going to get that with a standout name. And it's so it's like, if not, you have friction. In your process. So it's like, and brand, I think brands are, you know, I, I think they can be misunderstood, but they kind of fundamentally create enormous equity value within an organization. So you're kind of, if your name is fundamental to your brand, it's worth investing in it. Awesome. I want to be sensitive to your guys' time. Uh, entrepreneurs listening, if you enjoyed some of this conversation about company building, about sectors and evaluating markets and opportunities, you should want to work with NFX. We've, uh, we've been working with them for a long time and we're, we're super excited to do a lot of co-investments together. Where can people learn more about NFX online and, and, and you guys and, and any last words you want to leave the audience? Find out more at nfx.com. Read some of articles. Um, we also, as a, as a fund, we, we are just passionate about the entrepreneur community. So as such, we're, and we're also builders as well. So we're building a bunch of software tools to help to help entrepreneurs to do what they do and not just write words, but also write code as well. And Dave, do you want to tell about some of the tools? Yeah, we've we've built a thing called Signal, which is at signal.nfx.com, which lets the founders go and find the right fit for them. They can do a VC match where they can find out who they should be talking to. It's one of the things that always frustrated us as founders, and so we're trying to solve that problem. It's just it's community software. It's free to use. We're just doing it because it's an itch we wanted to scratch ourselves. You know, the other thing to know, I guess we should point out, is that we've got a lot of essays at uh, nfx.com slash essays, laying out a lot of these network effects principles, laying out the naming stuff, some of the histories of some of the companies that we've built. And um, we typically invest one to three million in seed rounds. Awesome. And I'm on Signal, so please uh, please find me on that. 
And yeah, we're very inspired by what you've done, both from a community perspective, from a software perspective. Uh, and Village definitely looks up a lot to NFX. So thank you guys. Thanks. Thanks for having us. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.